Hello and welcome to another episode of the 94 Feet Report NBA Podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, as Eric, as always, Eric Spiropoulos. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros NBA. Um, we are continuing our division preview series, as Corbin likes to call our training camp for the podcast. Uh, we're continuing with the Southeast Division. Corbin, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Eric, I'm doing pretty good. Feeling kind of hyped, feeling excited um, until I realize we're talking about the Southeast Division. So uh, <laughs> let's get perked up in, in this one. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, we're, we're pretty hyped because uh, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast already knows that we are rebranding our, what, our what? entire what? website, our entire brand. Um, and this is actually – this is Tuesday, September 18th, so we're actually going to post this on the 19th. And by this time, by the time you're listening to this, we probably have a whole new look. So you definitely got to check us out on all our social media accounts for sure to, be, to follow that. Um, but yeah, let, let's, try, let's try and stay high for the uh, Southeast Division <laughs> and let's kick it off with one of the worst teams in the league next season. That's the Atlanta Hawks. Um, so just to recap, like we've been doing in all of our episodes, their offseason, um, it was mainly – the offseason was, was eventful. Um, but in an interesting way that the biggest moves happened on draft night um, when they traded their pick for uh, – they traded down from three to five and acquired the Mavs 2019 first-round pick, and they really wanted to draft Trey Young, which is obviously who they drafted. Um, subsequently, they drafted Kevin Horder from Maryland and Omari Spellman um, in the draft, and then in free agency, they signed Alex Len. They traded for Jeremy Lin um, and Justin Anderson in that in – that, um, well, the Justin Anderson was in the Mellow deal, uh, which they who they had for about I think two or three days, um, and then they lost Dennis Schroeder in that trade, of course, and of course they brought in their new coach in Lloyd Pierce, who comes from the Philadelphia 76ers. So, you know, from the baseline of what they're working for from last season, obviously they were really bad last season. They were 26th on both ends of the floor. Um, that's per cleaning the glass, which doesn't have any garbage time, so it might have a bit different kind of rankings than the NBA's website. Um, but this is obviously, you know, the real start of this rebuild. So, you know, one of the main storylines that I identified, not only for this season, but moving forward, is this this notion that they could be, you know, the Golden State Warriors of the East. Um, and that's mainly because their new GM, Travis Schlenk, comes from the Warriors. Um, and this whole image of, you know, when you draft Kevin Young, uh, sorry, not Kevin Young, Trey Young and Kevin Horder from uh, Maryland, you have these kind of splash brothers, quote-unquote, and that they both kind of look and play like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. You know, Horder is a kind of a big shooting guard. Trey Young's obviously that dynamic off-the-dribble um, explosive shooter and, and dynamic passer who's kind of undersized like Curry. You have a switchable big like, like John Collins. There are the pieces there that kind of make you think that it could be like the Golden State Warriors of the East. Obviously, it's nearly impossible to replicate one of the best, if not the best, all-time runs and dynasties in the NBA history that the Warriors are currently on. But, you know, you've got the makings of this potential Golden State Warriors of the East. And the thing I like about it is that they're building this team to be really exciting and to kind of building it more like a modern NBA franchise as they look for this rebuild to be to kick off, really. Oh, yeah. And as you said, building right off the model, having that exciting backcourt. And I think the difference between them and the Warriors is having just a, 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 a frontcourt player that has the chance to be elite in John Collins. Just what he provides vertically as far as spacing. Um, he obviously has a lot to do on the defensive end of the floor. But he had a, a surprisingly, in my opinion, underrated, but you know, pretty good rookie season. I think he improved on his shot a little bit, extending out to the corner three. I saw in some summer league. So that's going to be exciting to see moving forward. But you're right. This, this team has a start. I mean, it really depends on how you feel about Trey Young. Because, I mean, you compare it to Steph Curry, and mind you, when Steph Curry first came in the league, at least from my recollection, he wasn't—he was—he was hyped as a good player, but no one knew he was going to be the kind of person he is now. So 
with Trey Young, yeah, there's a lot of skepticism against whether you can get a shot off against, you know, the, the better d- defense in the NBA. Um, question about his defense, his physicality, the athleticism, um, those kind of concerns. But he does have some Curry-esque um, separation from his dribble a little bit, and I think that'll be good to get back. You know, that'll be good to develop if he has that already starting against the NBA. And Kevin Hurd is a great shooting guard to play alongside. So you have the model in the making there. I mean, this team's going to be rough, though. I mean, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be rough. I mean, they're going to be rough, but at the same time, it, it's they're actually at the top. Or, I mean, I wouldn't say they're at the top. They're near the top. They're in the, the top half, at least, of my league pass teams to watch. Um, oh, wow. I mean, I think Over that, the Bulls? I mean, the Bulls, are, I mean, when we get to them, to that to that division, they'll also be there just because they're going to yeah. have so much offensive potential. And I like a lot of their young guys like Markkanen and Wendell Carter. Um, but for this team, I mean, may, maybe it becomes it comes down to having Trey Young. Um, but, you know, John Collins, I mean, like you said, he's very dynamic. He has that potential. Um, Torian Prince, who we can talk about a little like more, him. is extremely underrated and still very young. I think he's 24 or 23. Um, you know, maybe Kevin Hoyter gets a bigger role than we expect right off the bat. And if, you know, his sweet shooting shooting translates and Young does as well, that's a really dynamic and fun backward. So while they're going to be really bad, they're going to be one of those really bad teams that I actually do want to watch. Um, you know, seeing what Lloyd Pierce does as head coach, kind of seeing what he implements on both sides of the floor is always an interesting dynamic for a team. Um, so, you know, they're going to be really bad, but, you know, when you kind of understand this is the bottom of the rebuild um, and the kind of young talent that they have, that's actually really exciting to watch. And that kind of style of basketball where they should be kind of fast paced, um, you know, maybe some alley-oop passes. Trey Young's a really good passer, um, getting some sweet shooting in there. Um, I think they've got the pieces to be a fun team to watch while they're not actually, you know, getting W's in the column, in the win column. And I was going to say, the fact that they don't really have an expectation gives them more room to go, a la the Brooklyn Nets the past couple of years, where yeah. they can just kind of roll the ball out, see what works, what doesn't work, who are their key pieces moving forward, you know, to see if they, this is a good fit as is. Um, maybe they try to get rid of uh, Kent Bazemore and his contract moving forward. Maybe they decide to keep him as, as an additional piece as a veteran there. They have Jeremy Lin. Um, they have some players there who... who you know, are a little older to kind of groom these players along, but aren't exactly going to stand the way of their minutes. And and you're definitely right with Torian Prince, only 24, and he's been playing um, very very strong as far as just developing. Uh, I think last year he had a career high 38 points in a game against the Chicago Bulls, which is kind of fun. I think it was a 129, like 122 something, like a loss. They lost to the Bulls, but it was very fun. Um, and then he had another one. I think a, a key game he had last season um, was a win over the Celtics, where he made seven to eight three pointers um, for 33 points. He's really improved from his percentage off the ball as far as shooting is concerned. Um, he went from 32% from three um, the 2016-2017 season to 38, which is a pretty good jump on a on a substantial amount of attempts. Um, and he played all 82 games, averaged 30 minutes, um, 14 points, four rebounds, two assists. He could be that starting three spot um, in the role of a more offensively diverse Damari Carroll. And I didn't just compare them because of the hair. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do, I do like a few of their pieces moving forward. I just... I guess you're right, having no expectation will kind of love themselves to really trying out what works and what doesn't work because you can really build from the bottom up. And I think that's something just like the Warriors did where they built organically and then, you know, made a key signing here, a massive signing with Kevin Durant there, and really went from there. So I definitely could see a, what, maybe a two, three-year kind of window to kind of grow. And I'm putting that window on myself, obviously, but I think that's enough of a talent evaluator to see, okay, you know, does, does Trey Young really have what it takes to grow – on the defensive end, or is he going to be like a Jimmer for dead light? Because the variance in his game is massive. 
Yeah, it really is. And, you know, the second half of the college basketball season, he kind of, defense is kind of focused in on him more. He kind of struggled maybe a little bit more fatigue and having such a big offensive role. Obviously, I mean, I don't watch much college basketball, but I know he was on a really, really mediocre Oklahoma team. Oh, you um, can tell. So, you know, him having to do everything offensively, obviously, is going to put a lot of pressure on him. So I'm really interested to see, you know, what comes of Trey Young. And, you know, like you said about, like, you know, being able to see what's really there down the road. It's it's also in the same sense, you know, this front office regime, I think, will, will likely be defined by this trade that they made, um, basically swapping Young for Doncic. And, you know, we'll see what, what draft pick they get from the Mavericks. You know, the Mavericks obviously stand to improve quite significantly this year. They added DeAndre Jordan, Luka Doncic. Um, but they also, they're still not going to make the playoffs in the West. And they still could be, that still could very well be a top eight pick. Um, so we'll see what they can do with that pick. But really, if, you know, if Trey Young becomes a star... Um, or plays at the same level that that Doncic and you know eventually does. I think the Hawks will look great in a couple of years, especially if they can either use that draft pick that they get from the Mavs to get a good asset, or to just draft another talented player there. But if Trey Young doesn't pan out like he should, or at least how the Hawks think he will, because obviously they think pretty highly of him, I think that they this whole regime might be deemed a failure, especially if Doncic turns out to be what many people are expecting him to be, which is a you know franchise caliber, multi-time All Star, um, kind of defining cornerstone piece. If Young doesn't become that or anywhere close to that and Doncic does and the and the Hawks really don't be able to the Hawks aren't able to actually do anything with that pick that they get from the Mavs in 2019. This whole regime, they could make mo- better moves down the road, but this regime I think will be defined by this trade and either deemed a failure or a success based on how Young pans out in comparison to Doncic. Oh yeah, I was going to say that that trade in general was just the, the careers of those two players are going to be intertwined. That, there's no doubt about that. Every success and failure is going to be based off of that move because, I mean, I'm going to start by asking you this question. Would you have preferred the Hawks to have kept um, Luka Doncic? Because for me, as far as playing time is concerned, I'm glad they took Young. I think Doncic is clearly a, a superior player. I have interesting thoughts on Doncic, which I'll save for when we go to the Pacific Division and talk about, you know, uh, Doncic over uh, DeAndre Ayton and how I felt about that. But with DeAndre Ayton off the board at the time and the chance to have either Trey Young or Doncic, if I was Atlanta, I would have taken Young only because I don't think there was someone – you already knew you were moving Schroeder. I think that he was kind of already set to move after the season he had last year and just realizing he wasn't a potentially great fit. And you have an offensive fulcrum in Young with massive potential that's easier, in my opinion, to build around than Doncic where, I mean, for better or worse, you're going to have – Torian Prince in that same position. You're going to have Kent Bazemore in that same kind of small three position, even though I'm sure Doncic could swing, you know, to the, to the one and two occasionally. I think he's more of a, a playmaking three. Um, but but all that to say, wh- wh- what were you thinking as far as that trade, and who would you have preferred Atlanta to have taken at the three spot there? I, I would have pref- I would have taken Doncic, and mm-hmm. I think it's because when your team is this bad and you're kind of you you know you're going to the bottom of the rebuild and, and kind of going up from here, hopefully for them. Um, you really don't even look at your roster that currently stands and be like, oh, this is going to prevent us from taking a, a transcendent, a potential franchise, you know, defining player in Doncic. Mm-hmm. Not that do you young. Think, oh, oh, my fault. I was to say, not that young can't turn out to be that way, but I mean, Doncic yeah. is like you said, a, a playmaking wing. I mean, he can play probably the one, the two, the three, or the four. I mean, even, you know, Rick Carlisle said he's probably going to play some power forward this season. 
Um, that is so dynamic. I mean, he's a very good passer, capable ball handler, can get to the rim, has a obviously not a, a great shot, not a consistent shot, but definitely a, a dynamic shot that he can he can get a shot off and create his own shot, which is obviously a valuable skill. Obviously, uh, Young is an incredible passer and an, an incredible shooter, but you know Doncic projects to be a better defender. Um, maybe, probably not a really good defender, but still you know pretty better, uh, significantly better than Young on that end of the floor. And really, you know, you look at it and like sure they've got Torian Prince. Um, I wouldn't even look at Ken Bazemore like when I'm drafting because he is what I think 28, and honestly, yeah. I would I would be shocked. He's actually 29, sorry. Um, and I would be shocked if he wasn't traded, especially with teams being desperate for a wing during the during the season. Somehow the Hawks <laughs> could pull out like a future protected first round pick or two seconds and some kind of young player to get Bazemore because you know three and D wings, which is kind of what Bazemore is, are you know a high commodity in the NBA. And I think that during the season a team might get desperate as they either push for the playoffs or a top five six team looking to make the next step in the playoffs. Um, so for those reasons, I would have taken Doncic. So I just think at that point, your team is so bad, and in the draft, you should always take the best player available. I think that was Doncic, even though I am pretty high on, on Trey Young. I, I feel – yeah, I, I definitely am with you up to an extent on that. But do you think maybe that um, Bazemore's contract was just a little more toxic than maybe we're both imagining? Because even the Mavs, I think the Mavs had a chance to take that contract in that 3 for 5 swap. And I think they could have used an additional wing as well, and they were reluctant to do that. And the money, I mean – where you make $18 million this year and then jumps to $19 million the next year and then $28 million in 2020, 2021. Um, I mean, he's going to be – his age is, what, 28 to 31-year season? But maybe the money and the type of player that he is, which is, you know, strictly a 3 and D wing, not really a whole lot of playmaking, you know, not really a, a whole lot of really diversification to his game other than that. But do you think that maybe even with people as desperate for wings as they are, even with teams as desperate for wings as they are now, are a little reluctant to take – just that deal on because I think if any team could have had it why wouldn't the Mavs have taken it why didn't the Rockets pounce on the deal or work something out I'm sure the Hawks didn't want Ryan act saying that deal could have possibly been made already with some teams that really need could really need a wing that they could use as a contender you know yeah, and it's interesting why they didn't take the deal. I'm not sure. I mean, the behind the scenes aspect of it, they yeah, still have like, Wesley Matthews there, and if they project to put Doncic at the two to start, and Wesley Matthews at the three, Harrison Barnes is still there. Um, and True. for the Rockets, I think what you said is, you know, it came down to Ryan Anderson being the roadblock. Um, and, you know, they traded Ryan Anderson, but they had to include a, a top pretty good young prospect in DeAnthony Melton and they took back what most people consider a bad contract in Brandon Knight and a limited you know impact player in Marquise Chris even though he's still young so you know I don't think that they could have done Melton and Ryan Anderson for Kent Bazemore straight up um, but we don't know yeah. I mean that's that's the whole thing is like we don't know the behind the scenes aspect of that I think that if they could do that they would have preferred to do that um, mm-hmm. than get Chris and Knight but I just don't think that the Hawks were willing to take that um in, like you said, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, I think that I still would You be... have better arguments than me. I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that if you draft Hoyter in the first round, obviously not all first-rounders, especially when you get out of the lottery, play significant minutes in their rookie year. But if you draft him and project him to be the backcourt of the future with Trey Young, you can start the season off playing a lot of Jeremy Lin, who obviously we haven't even mentioned is still on the team. Is on the team, for that matter. I shouldn't say still because it's his first year. Um mm-hmm. And if you if, you know you can play Lynn and Bazemore a lot, you can even start them to start the season at, at, in the backcourt. Um, but I think like you get to that midseason point, especially around the trade deadline, teams are going to be calling you for Kent Bazemore. Obviously, his contract makes things difficult. Um, so maybe they would take back 
you know, if it's a team that's like the Pelicans looking for a better wing upgrade and maybe Solomon Hill, you know, still can't play, if they just took on Solomon Hill's contract um, and maybe a smaller other contract in the first round pick to get to give off to give Bazemore to like a team like the Pelicans that, you know, right off the top of my head needs a wing, that's a possibility. So I'd be really surprised if Bazemore's on the team past the trade deadline just because, um, you know, he has valuable skills for teams looking to compete in the playoffs. Switchable 3 and D wing is like exactly what teams need. Um, I mean, maybe his contract prevents a trade. I would, you know, like to think that it doesn't because the Hawks, I think, could use him to get an asset back in the form of, of a pick or a young player, which is, again, they're at the bottom of the rebuild. There's no point to really keep a 29-year-old Kent Bazemore on the team if teams are offering you some kind of intriguing asset for him. That, that is definitely true. I'm with that. I have one last question on the Hawks real quick. Moving forward, who are you more excited to watch? And I'll, I'll kind of answer this first, but is it Trey Young or John Collins? I think both are, you know, pretty young players with a, a, a huge ceiling ahead of them. And whether or not they live up to that is, you know, that what's remained to be seen. But um, I, I think Trey Young has more of a, of a higher uh, risk-reward kind of factor. I think mm-hmm. I'm just excited to see because whether or not he succeeds or fails – it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, he's definitely an aggressive player. The pull-ups from 30 feet are crazy. Um, some of the passes he does are very Curry-esque, both in their successes and their failures to convert. Um, and, and with the rest of the Hawks lineup really being rather low-usage players, he's going to have room to run because I don't really see any player other than Bazemar in limited attempts, Torian Prince in limited attempts. Um, Jeremy Lin, I think, is pretty good off the dribble. Um Kevin Huter, I mean, he was a great. I think he averaged 3.4 assists, so he was definitely able to see over the floor and kind of make some things off the ball. But the point I'm trying to get across is that there's not many players on this Hawks team that's going to create their own offense reliably and consistently. So he's going to have kind of free reign to run and do what he wants, you know, up to the coaching staff, of course. But with John Collins, I mean, he showed some flashes, and I think he had underrated year. And I think that if he did improve and had a massive jump, I mean, he could he could make more of immediate eyes on him. Look at how well he's been playing, you know, type of impact. Yeah, um, I'll go with Young, um, only because I, I just kind of enjoy watching guards a little bit more than big men, just the style yeah. of play, you know, you know, sweet shooting and dynamic passing. Um, and I like you said, I mean, sure, they could ease Young in and have Jeremy Lin kind of start at first and play significant minutes. But like you said, with the limited usage players and basically how how high they are in Young, apparently, by taking that trade and passing on Doncic, he's going to have so many opportunities. I mean, he's going to be... He, I think he's going to have so many shots. He's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. He's going to have a, a he might have a record usage for a rookie, honestly. Um, oh wow! He, I mean, he There's might. A it's possible. There's a chance. Yes, there um, is. Yep. And you know, it's going to result in a very low field goal percentage, probably a lot more turnovers than you'd like to see. But he'll also, you know, he'll be putting up a lot of threes. I think um, he'll be putting up a lot of points. He get some assists as well. Um, so I, I mean, I'll, just in terms of the way I like to watch basketball, I kind of, you know, Steph Curry is one of the most entertaining players of all time, and Young has this similar game to Curry. I'm not going to say he's going to be like Steph Curry, obviously, but he at least projects to have a similar play style in terms of the crazy off the dribble threes, not will, not being afraid to shoot the kind of crazy attempts in his passes. Um, you know, his undersized, you know, ability to kind of maybe score over bigger guys or shoot over bigger guys or something like that. So I'll go with young in terms of who I really want to watch more. Um, and I'm really excited to see how how quickly they give the keys to Young to this offense and what he can do alongside Prince and 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 John Collins because Torian Prince, like we said, is really underrated. I mean, the guy averaged basically 15 points, five rebounds, two and a half assists per game last year. He shot 38.5 percent on threes and actually attempted 
five and a half per game, which is a big jump up from previous seasons. So, I mean, they've got a nice young core in Young, Prince, and Collins. Now it's up to them to see what they do in terms of trading off their older guys to maybe get more younger assets or draft picks and then signing some guys um, on the fringes in free agency to kind of build up from the bottom here, which is, again, like I said, I think this is maybe next year might be the actual bottom of the rebuild, but this is the real start of the rebuild with this new front office and Trey Young leading the way with John Collins and, and Troy and Prince as the, kind of like the sidekick there. Yeah, you kind of talk me into them a little bit. It will be kind of fun to watch them. Well, I think I'm even, not talking not, to you. No, not not this season. I'm not talking to you to them this season because <laughs> I'm telling you, right now, I'm taking the under on 24. Um, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Because <laughs> but I'm saying huh? yeah. Oh no, I'm saying it'll be interesting to see by midseason since we had this little discussion over um, Collins or Young who will be the best player. By midseason, I think we'll kind of have. I mean, whatever small sample size of games we watch, yeah. you'll probably watch a lot more Hawks games than I will. <laughs> but we'll be able to kind of go off of that and revisit who's the best player for the Hawks. In, in, in year zero of their rebuild, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I'm going under on 24. I think it'll be close. I think they could honestly get 21 to 23 wins. And who knows, if Trey Young just, like, explodes sometime, he could have, like, a two-week period where you're just, like, shooting 40, 45% on threes um, and everything's kind of going right for them. And they could steal, you know, 24, 25, 26 games. But I think for the most part, he's going to struggle. They're going to be, you know, trading – they're going to have maybe, you know, trading away some veterans in during the season that obviously can change things up a little bit. Um, and, you know, they still have limited talent. So I, I think they go anywhere from, like, 23 – 21 to 23 wins, but that puts me on the uh, under of 24. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't even have to blink to think hard about <laughs> this. I'm putting them at like over, totally the under. I'm putting them at around 21. 21? <laughs> and yeah. I'm feeling stupid. That's why I did that. You know? <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So, all right. So, we're both going on the under for the Hawks, who also, by oh, the yeah. way, I should just shout out that Trey Young, I played one game with him in 2K, and he is really, really, really good. I mean, he is like. He's overpowered, I think, in 2K I was already. about to say hashtag overpowered. I mean, get out of here. Uh, yeah. I remember when Brandon Ingram was in the game. And, yes, maybe my Laker fandom is showing, but come on. Yeah. I mean, no, you, you I get mean, those guards that can have the handles and, and the shooting ability. and They could be a 73, and they can play like a 90 sometimes, honestly. Yeah, you could build a team around him. He's a 73. But, you know, I'm, I'm being funny. But, yeah. All right, let's move on to the Charlotte Hornets right Yay. now. Yay! Um, <laughs> I know, one of the most exciting teams in the league. Um, so their offseason, um, new coach, obviously, they got rid of Steve Clifford and James Borrego, Bre- I think it is. Um, oh, yeah. yeah I think Borrego, right? I think it's Borrego, Borrego. Yeah, I, I think know. I think that's it, yeah. Well, we're going to on some podcasts. One we'll of us right? is right and one of us is wrong, so we're going to continue <laughs> to say it in the wrong way for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> um, but so obviously, uh. new coach, they drafted Miles Bridges. They signed Tony Parker, and then pretty much they got rid of Dwight Howard, um, who they traded to the Nets for Mozgov and some second-round picks. And then they actually moved Mozgov to the Magic for Bismack Biombo and some second-rounders. So they got a bunch of second-rounders and Bismack Biombo is who they ended up with. Um, uh-huh. In terms of their baseline from last year, 10th offense – a lot better than I thought, um, and 17th defense. And they actually, which is one of the most interesting aspects of this team, and I think it's happened for the second year in a row, is that they dramatically underperformed their point differential. So if you look mm-hmm. at their point differential, their net rating, they had a net rating of a 41-win team. Obviously, last year they won 36. So, you know, it's one of those teams where it's like, yeah, they missed the playoffs and only won 36, but really the numbers say that they were more like a 41-win team, and that's kind of where their baseline is for this season. But... Um, some two two main storylines that I've identified. Main one, I think, is is this the last year with Kemba Walker? Um, obviously, becomes an unrestricted free agent next summer. 
Will he stick around in Charlotte if they can't make the playoffs again? It's unlikely. He said all the right things about wanting to stay in Charlotte, but he knows that if he misses the playoffs again, you have to make the playoffs and show up when everyone's watching. Obviously, he's a, he's a known commodity and known player, obviously two-time All-Star at this point, but you have to be in the playoffs to really keep your guy, keep your name in people's minds. And I think that he's going to want, as he turns, I think, 29, when he gets his next contract, he's going to want to you know, at least go somewhere where it's a bigger market or he's making the playoffs every year. Um, I think they should have traded him last season um, because he, he would have had a full sure. year left on the contract. And now he's going to, you know, you can only get diminishing returns if they trade him, at, you know, if they trade him at all, honestly. I don't know if MJ is going to even consider it, honestly, with, you know, the way he wants to be somewhat competitive and not rebuild. Um, but even if you're trading him this season, teams are not going to trade that much for a guy who could leave in, you know, three, four months after they trade for him. Um, but, you know, the numbers are just so funny with Kemba Walker because last season he had a 10.5 net rating, which is absurd. Um, the offense was almost nine points per 100 possessions better when he was on the floor, which makes a lot of sense. The defense was almost two points per 100 possessions better. Um, and that gets to the second storyline that I'm watching is the backup point guard play. Um, because last season, Michael Carter-Williams was one of the worst players in the league. Just numbers, just going by the numbers. And if you watched him for like more than five games, um, he had a, a negative or minus 5.1 net rating last season. Um, and the offense was 6.3 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the floor. So pretty much what happened was when Kemba Walker wasn't on the floor and, and Carter-Williams was, the offense just got completely killed and the Hornets themselves got killed as a team. I don't know how Michael Carter-Williams was able to secure a guaranteed contract in the first couple of days of free agency from the Rockets, but that's another mystery for another day. Um, but really, this kind of turns our focus onto Tony Parker, because at this point in his career, can Tony Parker really hold up the bench units enough to withstand the minutes when Kemba's not on the floor? I mean, at that point, I would have rather signed Shabazz Napier, who actually ended up costing the Nets less and signed, I think, a week after Tony Parker was signed. I would have rather had Napier, obviously, in his prime or entering his prime and had a really good season last year compared to Tony Parker, who's way, way, way beyond his prime and had a you know mediocre year last year for the most part. So those are the two storylines I'm watching for the Hornets, that a team that's like, are they still going to underperform or are they going to finally actually perform to what the numbers say they are? Oh, yeah. I think this team has a chance to even be worse than mediocre because, one, I mean, for over first, we talk about how getting rid of Dwight Howard is good for teams. And it usually is good for a lot of teams. I'm not saying that it won't be for Charlotte, but I'm saying the chance it might not be because rebounding and the pick and roll things that Dwight Howard for when he was bought in and really engaged. And that's something that they both lost now. I mean, they, the Hornets were the fourth best pick and roll team in the league last year. And that's despite the fact that they went to that play more often than all but four other teams. And and they really had a nice little thing going with Kaminsky and Howard because one would roll and obviously one would pop and you know who's popping with Kaminsky. Um, but the funny thing is he's not a rim-running big at all. I mean, your bigs have just depleted with Howard gone because, yeah, you have Biombo. You know he's not an offensive threat at all. I think, he's, I think his career high in points per game is six. You know what he's there for. Kaminsky only managed to dunk 15 times last season. I mean, I mean, as someone who can finish with the rim at all, 15 times. That's kind of crazy. Um, Willie Herman Gomez is there, and he's a younger player. Um, but on 1.2 possessions per game last season, he landed in the 73rd percentile and scored 1.19 points per possession, which is 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 not horrible, I guess. Um, but he's never been like the the the, the as big a party he's probably going to be this season as far as the bigs. And I think you know with Tony Parker there, I mean, this is the problem. Tony Parker's at 36. There's plenty of better options. He kind of had a rough year. You could definitely see the decline in this game last season with San Antonio. He's not a three-point shooter. Um, maybe he has more to give than being an assistant coach, as I guess he was offered, you know, player coach role in San Antonio. But I don't think he has enough 
to give to be a primary backup to Kemba. Although I will hedge that by saying that I do think that he'll be the one of the better um, backup point guards they've had in a couple of years. The only problem with that's that not is say, that, that's not saying much considering how I, bad Carter Williams was. I was just about to say that's not saying much at all. <laughs> also, you can't forget that Nicholas Batum is still on this team. And can we talk? I mean, we've been talking about some just con- we talked about Portland and some contracts that just sucked from 2016. Um. Nicholas Batum, was he 2016? I think I'm right with that, right? Yeah, he was. Okay, I think he's another big casualty, right up there with Mozgov and Dang, but just quiet and low-key. He turns 30 years old this season. He shot just 33% the past four years from three. Um, His passing's great, and I think he fit really good on a team where he's like, let's say the the fifth-best player, the sixth-best player, like slot him in, kind of let him play kind of deal. But he's probably the second-best player on this team. And he's somehow making $24 million this year and $27 million in 2020, 2021. I mean, you see his dribbling. He's not. He doesn't have a lot of bounce off the ball. His creation's kind of rough. If he's not really shooting well. Then he's a glorified playmaker on a team where more than you know, more than anyone should capable he have as an offensive load will be put on Kemba again. So I mean, it's kind of depressing thinking about Charlotte just on that alone. You still have Malik Monk. Um, he has a chance to really get better. Um, you know, he was kind of in the abyss last year, but he'll be able to shoot a little bit, kind of take over some ball handling duties again. Um, you know, his his three point shooting was okay i mean he's a good shooter though so i think that there's no there's not really any reason to doubt him i think the one thing i look at when i look at charlotte is just to the future obviously miles bridges um he's athletic he's lengthy he has a long way to go to be a great nba player his shot just abandoned him in summer league <laughs> it just was gone and he take he took some really dumb shots i saw that, that you just can't take an nba i mean just some crazy like caught in the air and oh let me flip this up like like you were number one option but like on steroids, you know, and obviously there's some youth and inexperience on that side. Um, and his outside shot is not trusted yet. And he's not really the most accomplished of ball handlers, but I think on this team with Kemba there, you need someone to kind of step up and, and front some of the offensive load. And I'm giving bridges the edge just over Malik Monk to kind of bring consistent offense. Cause if you look at this roster up and down, I mean, where are you going to find it? Jeremy Lamb is still in the league. I mean, that's great. I mean, he can kind of fill it up when he's in the mood. Um, but, I mean, who else are you really excited for moving forward other than a Miles Bridges and a Malik Monk if you have faith? I'm still on Frank the Tank, by the way. So I think Kaminsky will bounce back. Maybe not this year. But we'll be. this isn't the last we heard of Frank, okay? Oh, I think it, I think it will be. I mean, I think that he's just going to – I think he just projects to be a, a career kind of backup big. Um, but, so yeah, I mean, quickly, when you were talking about Batum, I was looking up his numbers. And it's really interesting because when he was with Portland, I mean – 2011, he shoots 39% from three. 2012, he shoots 37% from three. 2013, he shoots 36% from three, all on basically five attempts per game or more. And then 2014, from now, he has not shot above 34.8% from three. It's gone, it's gone 32. It's gone 32.4, 34.8, 33.3, 3, 33.6. Like, the shot just, like, has completely, not completely abandoned him because he's obviously he's still taking over five per game. That's, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, it makes him. It makes him still a threat. You have to guard him, but to drop yeah. to drop from thirty nine, thirty eight, thirty seven percent on five attempts per game to thirty three percent. I mean, it's crazy that 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 the the shooting has kind of not completely abandoned him, but just kind of just worsened over time, which is so strange. Um, but mm-hmm. I, the idea of Batum, like the ability to have such a dynamic playmaking win. I mean, the guy is average. 5.5 assists per game or more in each of the past three seasons while also contributing basically six or five rebounds per game, anywhere from 12 to 15 points per game. I mean, he's, he's 
ideal his play style is unique and and suggests that he could be really valuable but i think like you said on this team it doesn't really fit the contract of course is bad and he continues to age but you know maybe this year with less dwight howard post up taking taking the way of the offense um maybe he gets more shot opportunities and feels more comfortable as a, as I guess the second, the, yeah, he's the second offensive option, at least in the starting lineup. Um, I know Jeremy Lamb kind of had a breakout year last year, and we'll see if that can stay. If so, he could compete for that spot. But, you know, Batum will be a, a primary offensive key piece for this team. And, you know, maybe a, a potential reason Tony Parker went to Charlotte was that connection with Batum from the France national team. Um, maybe staggering Batum to play with Parker so Parker doesn't have to do that much off the bench. Um, it would be a great way to, to kind of neutralize how if they get killed in bench lineups. Um, but going back to what you said about the bigs, let's let's give some love to Cody Zeller here. I mean, I totally forgot about my man. I was thinking that when you started talking. I mean, listen, we, there was a great article um, on our website on the ninety four feet report website of Cody Cody Zeller called the Big Handsome and and just dives into a lot of great numbers. Um, Comparing, you know, the impact that Dwight Howard had versus Cody Zeller. And, and this number, there are a bunch of numbers that stick out to me. But really this number of when Kemba was on the floor with Dwight Howard, um, the, the, the Hornets net rating was plus 2.5. And that was on over 4,600 possessions, a lot of possessions, obviously. Cody Zeller missed a lot of time last year um, and, and has in recent seasons. So we don't even know if he can handle a full season of being the starting center. But when Kemba was on the floor with Cody Zeller last season, the Hornets net rating jumped to plus 6.8. Um and I think it really comes down to his his willingness to just do what do what we always want Dwight Howard to do, which is just set the screens and not call for post ups and just kind of clean up on the glass and get some alley oops and just be the benefactor of of playing with Kemba Walker instead of just getting post ups. I think you take Dwight Howard's post ups out of the way, you make Nicholas Batum a, a bigger role offensively, make him more comfortable. You get Zeller's focus on 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 screens and cleaning the glass. You have a little bit of a better offense I think in this case and maybe a little bit more of a more modern offense that kind of prioritizes what they do best instead of Dwight Howard's inefficient post-ups so you know I think that a larger role for for Cody Zeller you know bodes well for this team I think that Jeremy Lamb building on his breakout season last year maybe Batum gets more comfortable like I said in a, in a bigger role will help them I think Marvin Williams was, was very solid last year and, and he can continue to be that way for at least another season or two and if you get a, a jump in development from Malik Monk with a new coach maybe that prioritizes them a little bit more maybe can contribute a little bit more than we might expect. There are reasons to believe in Tony Parker, maybe, you know, being a little, obviously being better than Michael Carter-Williams. There are reasons to believe that this team can kind of actually be that 41-win team or greater that they actually had the point differential of last season. So I think that there is potential, you know, I think you're really down on them and I understand why. And at the same time, I'm not high on them, but I do think I'm higher on them than you are because of more Cody Zeller, a better role for Batum, a jump in development from Malik Monk, Jeremy Lamb continuing to grow. If they keep Kemba Walker on the team, obviously we know what Kemba Walker can do in terms of their impact and, and leading them to wins. There are, I think there are enough ingredients in here for me to, I'm going to jump to the over-under. Um, their over-under is 35.5. I'm doing the over on that. I mean, they won 36 games last year, and I don't think there's any way they got worse. Um, so unless they trade Kemba Walker or they have a bunch of injuries, I think they're going to be a little bit better, and I think that they can honestly creep up to 41, you know, anywhere from 40 to 42 wins, I think. Um, is what this team should be aiming for, and I think that could be enough to get them the eighth seed in the playoffs. Oh wow, yeah, I, I'm I'm encouraged to hear what you're, you know, how you're putting this in a flattering light. I do see some, as far as Zeller possibly improving, and some opportunities now for some players. I'm just not as optimistic as you were on them. I'm I'm gonna take, I would say I'm gonna take the under, but I kind of expect them to have exactly the same record they have now. Like I think Kemba Walker is is good for a couple of wins. I think that 
Zeller is going to have the chance, and, and if he steps up and gets more of an opportunity, it's going to be great. And he's going to have the opportunity to take back the starting job. However, with Herman Gomez, with Bismack Biombo, with Frank Kaminsky, and all their different skill sets, I don't know if Cody Zeller is far and away the best of any of them to like take the spot far, you know, just outright. So I think that could be interesting. Um, Alham Malik Monk. Uh, I'm not really sure how I feel about Jeremy Lamb. I just feel like he is what he is, which is kind of just this okay shooting guard. I don't know. I'm, I'm all of this to say that I'm not as optimistic. I'm going to say they're going to win 36 a game. This will be, what, their third straight season at that record, 36 to 46? I, I'm, I'm going to take I it right I think it will be. <laughs> yeah, so I guess if the over was it, you just said 35? I just had this up. The over, over under is 35 and a half. Oh, so I guess I am taking over. Okay, but not by much. There I you mean, you, you have to decide, really. 35 and a half, you have to either take th- be 36 uh, or 35. So I know. I'm, 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 I'm going to say 30. I'm going to say 36. I'm going to take the over then, just barely, because I do think that they have enough peace that they can enough to they're not going to overachieve by any chance, in my opinion. Even with the East as wide open as it is, and that tells you how I really feel about the the um, the Hornets here. Yeah, yeah, not too not too hot on them. <laughs> but uh, <Nah. laughs> speaking of Heat, what a corny corny transition that is to the oh, Miami Heat. Uh, that even hurts to say it, but it already happened. Let's let's move on. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Um, okay. <laughs> moving on, Miami Heat again. Really, I, I mean, talk about a team that really doesn't you know kind of stir up any excitement at least for their off season, which literally I have listed as their off season. Pretty much nothing. That's Absolutely. what I had for the offseason. Um, so their baseline from last year, last season, they were 20th offense, not good. Eighth defense, which is kind of what we can come come to expect given their talent and Eric Spolster's coaching. So the storyline, or the, the main storylines with this team is the same roster is coming back. Is it really enough to stand out in the East, even though it's weekend with LeBron leaving? I just, there's so many question marks in terms of them being able to maintain with the Eastern Conference, I know obviously there are a lot of teams under them that really aren't, you know, doing a lot of moves to jump them, like the Hornets, like we just talked about. They made some nice moves, in my opinion, but obviously don't stand to improve that much. Um, you know, Waiters should be back. There was the report that he's probably going to still miss some of the regular season, which is really concerning considering the fact how long it's been since he had that ankle surgery. Yeah, um, but even when he's been healthy, he really has only been a positive player like once in his career, which that was that two seasons ago, which actually got him this contract with the Heat in the summer of 2017. So, you know, relying on him to come back and kind of help you lead to wins is, is not exactly the, the best ingredient um, for success. Um, but then there's also things like, is there going to be regression from James Johnson? Is there going to be regression from Wayne Ellington? Regression from Goran Dragic? All these guys that are entering, whether well, in their 30s and entering their 30s, um, that's another concern. I mean, can Justice Winslow continue his development? And last season, the stats, like, don't jump out to you. It was 8 points per game, 5.4 rebounds, 2.2 assists. But he did start hitting his threes. I mean, he hit 38% of his threes. I know, I know he attempted less than two per game. But, like, you know, at least he's getting the percentage up a little bit. Um, my eyes are on Josh Richardson and Bam Adebayo. Uh, because yeah. those two are young enough or Bam's I think 19 or I think Bam's 20 now and, and Josh is I think 24 um they're young enough to actually you know constitute a young core quote-unquote um and, and Josh Richardson last year I mean if it, he was really really good and really under the radar because he averaged 13 points 3.5 rebounds basically three assists per game 38 percent on three-pointers over four attempts per game so he's a real shooter um he is like the prototypical three and d wing that can actually handle a little bit more playmaking than the av- the average 3 and D wing. I mean, he can kind of creep up, if given a bigger role this year, he could probably creep up to, you know, 15 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists on hopefully the same shooting. And that's extremely valuable in today's NBA. I think they got him for, was he on a 4-year, $42 million contract, which is a great value for him. And then Bam Adebayo, I mean, this guy projects to be 
a good starting center with his athleticism and his switching ability and the energy he provides um, on the glass. I was reading the article um, that Jackson Frank wrote for the step back in which pretty much he talked about how he's also a capable passer, um, a good switcher and kind of projects to have this Capella like impact at center um, being in the, in the sense that he has the same skill set and he kind of knows his role and just does it well, maybe compared to his, uh, the person in front of him in, in Hassan Whiteside. Um, so I'm looking at Bam Adebayo and I'm looking at Josh Richardson. If those two can continue to develop, maybe they can make up for some of the expected regression from some of their older guys and keep the heat afloat in, in the Eastern Conference playoff race. Oh, yeah. It, it's really going to have to go down to entirely offense, um, not offensive development, but just player development from all these players. And I'm going to add Justice Winslow as well there because, you know, he did take a couple more threes this season. I think he still has the potential to be a, um, a do-everything kind of player if he works on, on his offensive game a little bit more. Um, you saw he was played in different lineups from point guard to basically center, and you saw he worked actually pretty well in select center lineups from back in the 2016 playoffs. But those players are really where you're kind of at because with Wade and Haslam returning, update, you know, Dwayne Wade and, you know, Giannis Haslam are returning, you basically are rolling back the exact same lineup you had from last year and just bringing that back again. Um only difference is, and this is kind of what was already set when Pat Riley handed out over $204 million to James Johnson, Deion Waiters, Josh Richardson, Kelly Linick combined um, a couple years ago. And that doubled down on that team. They're locked onto those four players for more than $53 million, and that's three seasons from now. And that's assuming that Johnson yes. and Linick pick up their player options. And I don't know. I'm, a, you know, doing Nate Duncan here. I think they're going <laughs> to pick up those player options. So, uh, you know, that's a lot of money for a group of guys that, haven't really exactly guaranteed you nothing in terms of contention. I mean, you could say they're going to be, they're going to be in the playoffs. I think, you know, at least a a seventh or eighth kind of scrappy kind of team. Um, They're going to give you a tough out, but do you really, I mean, I think their ceiling is kind of capped there. And in some, with the James Johnson one, Waiters got to see how he comes back from that injury. Josh Richardson, Richardson, it depends on how you see him because I, I project him to be a top tier defender who can shoot well from three. Um, I don't know if I if I have if I see him being um, the type of player that projects to be a high volume scorer. I think he'll be he could be a lot more of an efficient shooter um, or efficient scorer. His three point percentage went from thirty three percent to thirty eight percent this past year. Um, he's done better as far as passing, but I don't know if that's the kind of player I see him as. And depending on whether you do or not, is kind of. Um, it's kind of where you put your, your money on as far as where Josh Richardson will project. Kelly Linick is kind of what you see is what you get. I really like him as a shooter. Um, you really saw a lot of – a little bit off the ball play, and I'm not, not – oh, he's dribbling, doing step backs and stuff. But, you know, really good at selling a, a pump fake and kind of getting to the rim a little bit. And I really like seeing that development from him. But Miami, they're, they're just not – I mean, I don't want to say they're not a sexy team, but they're just – you kind of know what you're getting. You know what I mean? Wayne Ellington's your shooter. They're going to have some half-decent spacing, depending on which player is really taking, you know, hitting their threes. Um, I do think if Deion Waiters comes back, and it is troubling, like you said, that he's, um, that he's um, you know, out for as long as he was. But when he was with Miami, especially on that back end of the 2016-2017 season, you know, they, they, he definitely played well. Their, their effective field goal percentage was 0.20% higher, 0.27% higher with Waiters on the floor. Um, he created more shots. He was able to get to the rim more. Um, obviously, playing with Miami, his defense has improved um, under Coach Spolstra. So I think he's going to become a key swing player. And we really, you know, such a small sample size last year, we really don't know what we're going to get. You know, when he comes back, how much of explosiveness is there, you know, whether, you know, how he's going to improve from there moving on. But I think that the Guillaume Waiters moves the needle slightly and internal development is going to be key for this team. But there's some players here, especially with James Johnson and Goran Dragic, who are on the wrong side of 30, and some other players who have low ceilings, in my opinion, and are what you see is what you get. 
that they're locked into these players, and, and that's kind of interesting. So I really do think it comes down to, like you said, Bam Adebayo, Justice Winslow, Josh Richardson, and seeing what they have and whether they can, you know, grow their ceilings and exceed those. And, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the Sun Whiteside. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, is, is Eric Spostra being able to kind of continue working his coaching magic with this, what I would consider a limited and, and for the most part, a mediocre roster. Um, oh, uh, obviously, there were the reports of his tensions with Hassan Whiteside. There was, I think there was a report that they've kind of talked things out. But, you yeah. know, maybe – does he have any trade value at this point? I'm not even sure with this contract and, and the way he plays in today's NBA. Um, He's shooting might... threes, Eric. He's shooting threes now. <laughs> okay. You know what? I will wait until I see that because Dwight Howard's <laughs> told me he's shooting threes for the past two summers and I've never seen it. Um, true that. True so, that. I mean, they might have to ex- explore that, especially if, if, if Bam, you know, kind of comes out of the gates just, like, running in terms of his, his, his development. Um, and the other thing is, like, does Dwayne Wade, obviously Dwayne Wade's coming back, does he take away minutes from better players? Like, I love Wade. Um, he's one of my favorite players ever. But if he's taking away minutes from, like, a, a really good shooter like Wayne Ellington, if they need more floor spacing, um, or, I mean, I hope this never happens, if he takes away minutes from, from Josh Richardson or Justice Winslow, even if Deion Waiters is back healthy and playing like he did two seasons ago, if Wade's playing over him, that could be troublesome. Tyler Johnson can obviously contribute as well. So Wade can contribute. But his his playing time should not be the primary focus of this team, especially if there are players younger and in their prime and better than him at this point of his career. So get him enough minutes. He can still contribute. But if you're playing him towards the end of his game for his kind of clutch value over guys who can maybe space the floor a little bit more or play a little bit better defense at this point, that could be troublesome for them as well, especially considering it's his retirement year and they want to send him off well. Um you know, this team has a lot of solid depth. I think they've got like 9 to 10 quality rotation players, and they've got a lot of intriguing pieces. Like I said, I really like Josh Richardson. I really like Adebayo. I like what Kelly Olynyk brings as a smart player and obviously really versatile offensive big. Um, but I just, I just think that I just, there's not enough star power, obviously, to be true playoff threats in the East. And I think that they won 44 games last year, and if they continue playing this grinded-out style of defense that they always have a top-10 defense, that will win you games. But I think at some point... It's going to catch up to them, and, and for that reason, I'm, I'm picking the under on their on their over under of 41 and a half. Um, this is this is a really hard one to pick. It's I think it's the hardest one to pick that we've done out of all the teams we've previewed so far. But I think I see a little bit too much regression coming for a team that you know really kind of it just got they scrape by, and sometimes you just you can't do it every year, year after year. Um, considering the fact that I just see a little bit too much regression coming from a bunch of their key guys. And again, if they have any tension with Whiteside during the season, that kind of limits Adebayo's playing time. And Wade maybe getting too much usage percentage to kind of take away from Richardson getting a bigger role or Ellington spacing the floor. There could be concerns here that I, that I think are, are warranted. And for that reason, I'm being finally, I feel like for the first time out of all these team previews, I'm being pessimistic on a team, but I'm going the under. Oh, you definitely, yeah, that's, that's kind of shocking. I'm going to say under as well, but I'm going to give them 40. I think this team, the, the one thing I think, at least for aggression-wise, I don't think they have too far to fall up this year. I think they can at least kind of sustain that level of play they had last season. And so I don't think there'll be too much slippage. And I do think at least one of those three of Adebayo, um, Winslow, or um, Richardson will kind of stand out a little bit. So I'm going I'm to put it at 40. But I'm not super high on them, and I cringe to see what they'll be the year after next, or the year after this one. Um, but I do have a question for you. One last one before we kind of move on from the heat here. I was trying to make a pun. It failed. I'm going to keep going. Um, which player, and you, you mentioned Richardson, do you think he's going to be the, the clear breakout player for Miami this year? Or are you have out of bio, or are you on the Winslow train? You barely mentioned him, so I feel we're not probably as high on him as I have a, a hope that he can be. Yeah, I'm not as high on, uh, on Winslow as you are. I think it's out of bio because 
Richardson did have a big role last year, while Adebayo's role was kind of limited. Um, you know, seven points, five point five rebounds, um, one point five assists. He had a, he had a pretty small role. I mean, he only played one thousand three hundred seventy minutes in sixty nine games, um, nineteen point nine minutes per game. You know, him getting the minutes load of a starting center, which again won't happen this year, won't happen until Whitehead's gone. Honestly, in my opinion, unless unless uh, Sposer really goes drastic and just kind of benches Whiteside or something like that. But him getting the bigger role would serve to him to be more of a breakout player. Where Richardson last year actually played over 33 minutes per game, like he played a healthy amount of minutes um, in 81 games. So I think for that reason. Um, I think that Richardson's going to be a better player this upcoming season and he's going to have a bigger role. But if you were to give Adebayo an extra 10 minutes per game, he would actually project, given his skill set and his per-minute per um, statistical averages last year, he would project to have the bigger breakout season. I just don't think he's going to get a big enough role where Richardson, I think, will still get 33 to 35 minutes per game um, and hopefully a bigger offensive role in terms of usage. So I'll go with Richardson this year, but moving forward, I think like two years from now, it could be Adebayo and, and, you know, Adebayo projects to have some really high upside at age 21. I'm with you on that. I'm with you. And I, I think with that, we kind of close out Miami, right? <laughs> Sounds about right. Let's move to, oh man. Uh, I was about to say, I was excited. And then I looked next. Let's move this. to the, well, this is a, this is a really interesting Orlando magic team for a, a lot of reasons on the defensive end for that matter. But let's recap their off season. Obviously drafted Mo Bamba, um, at pick six, I believe it was. Um, obviously, like I said before, they were in that weird transaction circus that ended up with Timothy Mozgov um, and Jerry and Grant. Um, they obviously replaced their head coach with Steve Clifford now, who goes from Charlotte to the Orlando Magic, staying in the same division. Um, and then they lost guys like Shelvin Mack, Mario Hazonia, uh, Bismack Biombo, and Maurice Spates. All kind of small role players, though. Hazonia did have somewhat of a breakout season last year. Um, they're Baseline from last year, they're 25th on offense, 20th on defense. They had the point differential of a 28-win team, um, even though they only won 25 games. So, again, like they slightly underperformed their point differential. Some storylines. Um, wingspan, wingspan, wingspan is the storyline. This new regime in Orlando comes from Milwaukee. I think it's John Hammond. Um, they love their long and tall players with big wingspans. Obviously, you look at Giannis and Thon Maker to guys in Orlando like Jonathan Isaac and Mo Bamba. Um, Bamba's ha- Bamba had the longest recorded wingspan at, at 7 feet 10 inches. Melvin Fraser, who was a second-round pick, had 7 feet 2 inches. Justin, Zach's- Justin Jackson, another second-round pick, had 7 foot 3-inch wingspan. And Jerry and Grant, who they traded for, had a 6 foot 7-inch wingspan at point guard. So really, you know they're looking for smart and long defenders to block shots and disrupt the passing lanes and eventually, maybe even this season, I'm not sure, switch and those are the components of a modern defense, and that is where you get excited about this Magic team, is on the defensive end with the potential that they have with Bamba, with Isaac. Um, I don't think Grant's their point guard of the future, but really it's Bamba and Isaac controlling things defensively in the front court, and it's about them adding that third defensive piece in the back court. That's the big question mark, um, which is the second storyline that I have is, so when are the open tryouts for point guard? Because right now it's, it's, it's Grant and it's DJ Augustin, um, and they need to find that point guard of the future to go alongside Bamba and Isaac and or Gordon. Um, and I'll get to that in a later storyline. But, you know, the question of – and it's not about – because they're not going to be good this year, so it's not really about, you know, forcing your way into getting a point guard for this season. You can get by with Grant and Augustine as one of the worst point guard rotations in the league, but, but you can get by with it, especially if they're going to be really bad anyways. Um, but the question is – do they find that point guard through a trade or is it really just looking at summer of 2019 free agency because 
that time they'll have Terry Rozier as a restricted free agent, but if they give him a hefty payday, I think the Celtics will be very hesitant to, to match. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie will be unrestricted free agent. D'Angelo Russell will be restricted free agent. Again, a payday, a big payday could make the Nets hesitant to match as well. Um, you know, what, what What would you think of, this is throwing a question to you, a hypothetical, of mm-hmm. using Aaron Gordon for D'Angelo Russell in some kind of draft pick? I mean, who would really say no? I don't think any team would really say no in that situation. You can work around the specifics beyond that. But a, a package centered around Gordon for Russell and some kind of draft pick, I think it's intriguing. Yeah, I actually do. If I'm if I'm on any on the receiving end of of Aaron Gordon, I, you know, you look at the qualities that he has: six nine, absurd athlete, can defend both big man positions, switch out to some perimeter to any perimeter play. I think he's really good on that. He's improved his outside shot literally with each season, and you can see him becoming you know league average or at least a, a better shooter in the next couple of years. And he's a good rebounder, solid passer. There's so many things on him that are that are really good and project well moving forward. At the same time, I mean. He's, he has great gifts, and sometimes he just flashes it and then goes stretches out with, of games without really doing anything as far as making a huge impact. You know, and there's still mistakes on both ends of the floor. Now, is that gonna is that gonna impact the trade? No, because if you offer me Aaron Gordon right now for Angelo Russell, and I love Angelo Russell, I'm still taking Aaron Gordon just because. And I guess this is like the reverse effect of having a guard because obviously you want to go with guards, but D'Angelo Russell, as much as I love him, has you know some issues that I haven't yet to be um, rectified, in my opinion. And Aaron Gordon offers you so much from a big man or a forward swing position that I think it outweighs the the attributes of a D'Angelo Russell who's still young and has, you know, plenty of room to grow. That's a great deal. I just don't know if if, if they do that, then obviously you want to have Jonathan Isaac kind of cement himself as that forward spot moving forward or Mo Bamba or one of those other front court players to kind of be that guy to go along with D'Angelo Russell. Because if you're Orlando making that trade, you're not unless you are really high on D'Angelo Russell moving forward. You want to have him paired with someone, right? Yeah, and I, I think, like you said about the the kind of Gordon's fit with the Magic is is one of the third storylines that I have is that who are the key pieces of their young core? Because I think that we can, I think everyone agrees that Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon are both best at power forward. But I think one of them, I guess, this season will have to play at, at the three. They're going to have to play small forward. And we saw that didn't work with Aaron Gordon two years ago. And Isaac is a similarly limited shooter. Um, mm-hmm. I know Gordon has, in, you know, has improved his shooting. He shot almost he shot 33.6% on about six attempts per game last season, which is a huge improvement. But, again, he's still a limited shooter. And, you know, you don't really take advantage of his skill set unless he's going against opposing power forwards. You put him against small forwards and you match him up with a lot better defenders, a lot more mobile defenders, especially on the perimeter that can kind of keep up with him. That could be troublesome for him and using his talents to the best of their abilities. Similarly with Isaac, I mean, Isaac, with his size and limited shooting, he projects to be a, a, a four moving forward as well. So that's why I mentioned before, it might not be it might not be Isaac, Bamba, and Gordon. It might be Bamba and Isaac, honestly. And they, they honestly, that's why I thought of Gordon as that piece to use for a point guard, because if they want to use Isaac and Bamba as that kind of long, switchy, wingspan de- defensive frontcourt duo, using Gordon to get a really a solid point guard and maybe a future draft pick or another young player is probably the best way to do it. I mean, you could look at using Nikola Vucevic um, plus some kind of pick, plus some kind of pick to get a point guard, and that way you can open up more minutes for Bamba this year. Um, so I, I think they have veterans um, that they could use to get a, a guard, a backcourt piece, or they could just literally say, you know, we, I know they re-signed Gordon to that that nice extension. Um, yeah, four years, eighty million. Yeah, and and that was a good deal for them, the value of it, especially because they made it so that the salaries would decrease in subsequent seasons instead of rise, um, which, would, which would be good for the uh, the salary cap and, and give them more cap space, but. 
the, the way this team's shaping up, I mean, I'm not sure I like the fit of Isaac and Gordon together on the floor at the same time, especially with Mo Bamba. I mean, and that's to say nothing of how they'll fit with Nikola Vucevic if, if he's in there as well. And that's just in general, because individually, it, it's a weird set. It's like you have the players that Hammond have required along with those left from, from Rob Hennigan. And, and there's talent there, but there's definitely some gaps that you can see on point guard. Um, and there's also some parts where the players don't really mesh extremely well. You know, the wings who can defend aren't the greatest of shooters. The ones who can shoot, you, you kind of see what they have on the defensive end. Um Nikola Vucevic, who I think will be moved this season, but played surprisingly well last year as far as stretching his game out finally to three and really becoming a threat out there. It's it's, it's a lot of mismatched pieces here and a whole lot of wingspan, as you mentioned, and that makes it definitely interesting. And the storyline I actually have, um, it, it's it's Aaron Gordon, as you said, but it's specifically his three-point shooting. We already talked about how he's improved shooting-wise. Um, he went from coming in, just shot a dreadful 27% from three as a rookie. He's improved, as I said, every year from there um, to the point that right now he posted a, a respectable 33% this past season. Um, we remember, I think everyone remembers Orlando's hot start and Aaron Gordon in specific, or specifically started off red hot from three. He shot just a blister in 42.5% from three through December. Um, and then we obviously saw that just cool all the way down for the rest of the year. Um, and he really could barely manage 20% from three in January. And that's kind of what really set his percentages down. But if he can bring that, th- that, that ball, that three ball back and, and really start shooting it consistently from outside as he was originally, not only would I give the magic some much needed firepower from there, because that, you know, improves him as a threat now off the pick and roll, but also, you know, cr- handling the ball from the top of the key and, and spreading the floor. They're going to have to generate offense from somewhere. I think Aaron Gordon, his three-point shot, is going to be a really big factor for that. And this is an interesting note. In wins last year for Orlando, Gordon shot 42.1% from the three-point line. In losses, that number was down to 30%. As the variance goes, so does the losses. I think there's enough there to kind of to kind of make a case for why it should be a storyline. But he's clearly going to be their top offensive player, no question. I think that as he improves and, and and brings more versatility to his game and really becomes a threat moving forward, a force to be reckoned with, so can Orlando when they can probably, you know, play some lineups that, I mean, any lineup they put out there is going to be kind of weird. But they can get away with some lineups on the defensive end because they have a player who's clearly an offensive, you know, a, a chance to be a superstar. I'm not going to go too crazy here. But someone who can just generate offense consistently. Yeah, and like you said, that, that shot will be huge because if he can, can develop to be a consistently above-average shooter, then you can kind of get away a little bit with playing him on the floor with exactly. Isaac at the same time. And Bamba has a nice shot that he can stretch to the mid-range as well. And Vucevic started hitting threes um, last season as well, so he can space the floor, which helps out as well if he's still on the team you know, by mid-season. Um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so you know this team, like you said, the lineup's going to be weird. I think with Steve Clifford, obviously a, a, a solid defensive coach, they, they can actually improve a little bit defensively. They were 20th last year. You know, we'll see. I think they have potential to be, like, a, at least a league average defense. Um, but, again, you know, relying on young guys like Isaac and Bamba to really be good. They, obviously, it'll be easier for them to contribute on defense than offense for those two players. But I think they have potential to improve defensively. It's the offense that is, is really concerning um, for oh. me and really the reason why um, – I mean, I'm going to take the under on 31. Um, oh, yeah. Surprise? Oh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's they have some really raw young players, and I think the offense is just going to be so bad that they're going to be bad again, um, which makes sense for them because, again, like kind of Atlanta, it's a team that's kind of – I mean, they've always been rebuilding. I feel just terrible for them. At least Atlanta was good for the past couple it's of years. It's sad. I know. Um, 
it's tough for them. Um, I like some of their pieces. I like what they're going for. And like Atlanta, they have a vision, at least. Um, they do have this vision of it's kind of almost like the opposite of what the, the Hawks are looking for in terms of dynamic offensive play from Young and Hoyter and, and, and John Collins. And this is going for that long, lengthy, modern defensive scheme with Bamba and Isaac and potentially Gordon and, and maybe another piece that they had in the backcourt. Um, I think that I wish that they went with more of an unproven and younger coach to kind of lead them through the rebuild. I feel like Clifford, I, I like Clifford. He's a solid coach, like I just said, but. I don't, I'm not sure he's going to be looking to prioritize the young player development as much as this team should be doing this season, which is concerning as well. Um, so I wish they went for more of a young, unproven, maybe under-the-radar assistant coach that would have been totally focused on the young guys, totally okay with just getting having a terrible win-loss record um, if it means development for the young players. But they're going with Steve Clifford. Maybe he wants them to instill some kind of smart defensive tactics and schemes onto their young, raw defenders. But... Um, yeah, they're going to be really bad. Um, they'll be good defensively. They'll be really, really bad offensively. And I'm going the under on 31. Um, I- I'm definitely taking the under on that. I'm putting them around 27 to be specific. Um, another play I meant to ask, I meant to ask you a question in general, and that's it's kind of a, a trick question, kind of puts you in a bad spot, um, concerning who would be the, who, who will be the Magic's uh, best playmaker <laughs> moving forward. But before I just throw that one to you, I think another player that I, I'd want to give at least some love to, who's not really that big moving forward as far as low upside, you know, um, not really that much room to improve, but who I think would be good to kind of diversify some lineups for the Magic would be Jonathan, I, uh, Jonathan Simmons, Jonathan Isaac, <laughs> Jonathan Simmons. I think that, um, you know, he was inconsistent, obviously, but this was his first year really having extended minutes since coming over from San Antonio. Um, one night he scored 25, the next he'd throw up just a horrible game. I um, mean, in 69 games, he had 20 in which he, on, in which he only scored in single digits. Um, and he really mixed up some inconsistency in between there. He had a, a game on March 2nd where this was his scoring tools. I'm just going to give you a run of games here. He scored 4, 11, 4, 9, 25, 24, 10, 35, and 13. So in between a 10-point performance and a 13-point performance, he sandwiched his best game of the season. And at that point, I think he went 7 for 10 or 7 for 13 from 3. Um, it's, it's just crazy because I feel that he has the ability to go off. He just needs to be more consistent. He can get hot from 3. He can finish in the mid-range okay. He can finish in the lane pretty well. And then other times he just disappears. I, obviously, it's not really going to be a starting role for him. He's not going to be a major piece moving forward for Orlando. But I think as a swingman who can – a little more um, consistent on that end, and we still have Evan Fournier, who's underwhelming, but can still provide something. Then you really start to see the form of a of a halfway decent NBA offense with Orlando, because right now, as we've already gone over at nauseum, they, they don't have it there. But that's a player I wanted to just shed some light on there. But um, yeah, who do you think is going to be their best playmaker? And feel free to comment on Jonathan Simmons if you have anything. Um, well, I, and the playmaking wise, I think it, I mean. I mean, Evan Fournier is a capable wing playmaker. He averaged, like, I think he averaged three assists per game last year. DJ Augustine mm-hmm. averaged almost four assists per game last year and figures to have the ball in his hands a lot uh, <laughs> as the starting yeah. point guard. So he, he could, you know, put up the biggest assist numbers. And he's, he's decent He's decent enough as a playmaker. No, no one on this team is, like, actually a really good passer, like just natural passing ability in terms of passing guys open instead of just finding open guys. Um, yeah. But... I think Augustine will average the most assists and have the biggest assist percentage and he'll have the ball in his hands and he's going to have, you know, initiating whatever offense they're running. Um, I want to give a quick shout-out, though, to Terrence Ross, who... Oh, yeah. I mean, only because they're going to need him. He only played 24 (laughs) games last year. and First of all, it's really sad when you say you need Terrence Ross, but they, they need his shooting. I mean... Last year, he only shot 32% in the 24 games he played um, from beyond the arc. But in previous seasons, 
He is an elite shooter, attempts basically five attempts per game, always been above average for his career. They're going to need his scoring, and they're most importantly, they're going to need his floor spacing. Again, with, they sh- with, with them shifting, most likely Aaron Gordon or Isaac to small forward. Evan Fournier probably starts at shooting guard. Um, that means Terrence Ross will be competing with Jonathan Simmons for backup minutes on the wing. Um, it, it, I think he's not going to have a, a nice role. Um, he probably, he'll probably have maybe like 17 to 20 minutes per game role, but they're going to need his floor spacing um, and his shooting, and it's just his dynamic scoring ability and you know his dunks to actually make them somewhat of a, of a watchable team and get them on, on highlight packages on SportsCenter every once in a while. So just wanted to shout him out as, as a key player for their offense. Like you said, they have some nice offensive pieces, Fournier, Terrence Ross. DJ Augustine's a really good shooter at least. Um, Vucevic is has been one of the best offensive bigs over the past couple of years in terms of consistency. So they have offensive pieces, but overall the mesh, the, the fit doesn't mesh well. Um, and they're bad. So <laughs> um, I'm, pour, I'm pouring a drink out for them right now on this fifth iteration of a rebuild since like 2012, actually the numbers are off like the sixth or seventh rebuild right now. It's, it's just a shame. And, and I shed a tear just thinking of how quickly they fell after they got rid of Dwight Howard, which <sighs> yep. Speaking of Dwight Howard, uh, uh, got it. Got it. <laughs> I love <to> it. <laughs> Washington Wizards, the fifth and final team of this division. Um, their offseason <laughs> headlined by signing Dwight Howard. Um, they also signed Jeff Green. They traded Marcin Gortat for Austin Rivers, and they drafted Troy Brown um, in the draft, and they lost Mike Scott to the LA Clippers. Last season, the most, the epitome of average 14th on offense, 15th on defense. The storylines that I've identified. It's easy to talk about the potential locker room explosion um, because whenever that ha- Dwight carries so much baggage with him, oh, I can't wait. We, we know what happens with Dwight when he goes to a team at this point in his career. And obviously, Wall had issues himself with Marcin Gortat last season um, and hasn't always seemed to have the best chemistry with Beal and others on his team. So that's another issue to maintain. And, and Scott Brooks, his ability to maintain control of the locker room is a, is a question mark because I feel like if this team stays together off the court and kind of stays cohesive, which is a big AF considering, you know, who they have on the roster, they have the talent to be really good because another storyline is just the quality depth that they have at pretty much every position. I mean, you look at point guard, you've got Wall, Tomas Sadoransky is a really good backup. Austin Rivers can handle the point as well. As shooting guard, Bradley Beal, elite, arguably the same level as Wall, all-star level. Um, and then Austin Rivers projects to be the primary backup at shooting guard. Um, but then small forward, you got Otto Porter, great shooter, still kind of trying to find his way on the defensive end. Um, but Kelly Oubre provides that energy and that kind of nasty uh, off the bench. Um, you've got Markeith Morse at, at the four, backed up by Jeff Green, who Jeff Green. L- limited shooter, but he showed he can contribute last season for the Cavs. And then at center, you've got Dwight, and probably the weakest spot is is backup center Yamahimi. Just you know, he has not looked good at all since they signed him to that deal with that with the knee injuries that he's had. Um, so they've got quality depth. I, I like the depth. This is probably the deepest team and, and arguably the most talented team that Wall that, that this Wall Beal backcourt combo has had in recent seasons. So the really, I just like it's so frustrating because if they stay together off the court and they don't have as many locker room issues as many people project, they've got a really talented team. Yeah, there, there's some pieces here that like I hate to use a 2K analogy, but if you look at them individually, you go, wow, that'd be an interesting 2K team. Like John Wall's improved his three point shooting. Um, immensely, and, and obviously Bradley Bill has improved his um, <laughs> ball creation and passing, especially in the wake of John Wall's injury for much of last season. You could see that improvement because the Wizards played uh, well. 
which, you know, inspired Martian Gortat's uh, great team victory uh, tweet that just got everyone going crazy in February. But, you know, there's some pieces here. Austin Rivers has been a decent shooter, an above average shooter on a decent number of attempts from three the past two seasons. The shot up 37 percent, you know, give or take the percentage points there. <laughs> the 37.1 percent um, in 2016-2017, 37.8 percent last year. That'll help a bench that really had um, – just been struggling to generate points consistently there um he hasn't been very efficient but he's a secondary ball handler who can slot alongside beal you can slot alongside wall there's some um there's some versatility there you know obviously um well not obviously but i really think that kelly Oubre will have a improved season troy brown jr won't make much of an impact just because of his age and just where he's at but i think that or his lack of shooting and his age but he he's still going to be there and his development will be big because he is six seven and has pretty good vision for for his size which could allow brooks to play different lineups with multiple ball handlers on the floor and that could be with or without john wall which will help also because when you know in previous seasons john wall was just the offensive fulcrum for everything without him the ball movement it didn't die it was like it was like he was their best their best weapon and worst enemy just because he controlled the ball so much but now you bring in several different players who can be playmakers and generate offense with or without john wall having the ball and i think that helps them the only problem is that you know you don't just do like 2k where you roll the team out turn off the chemistry and, and let the games play you know they do have to mesh in the locker room they do have to mesh off the court um and you have a coach and in, in, in scott brooks who i like i said i'm not sure he's a real taskmaster and really gonna whip them boys into shape you know i'm, I'm being funny here facetious but really gonna make them kind of work together if, if 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 a player comes out and let's say dwight howard who has grandeur of being an anthony davis light and John Wall, who has grandeur of being an MVP this season, and other <laughs> players who come in with all these just grandiose, unrealistic expectations, and they command you the locker room, and they clash, this would be a walking dumpster fire. It'll still be fun to watch, but it'll be a dumpster fire. And it would be so disappointing if that's the case because of the talent that you just ran through and all the different lineup variations that they have and just the support that they can give Wall and Beal for the first time in, in what seems like forever, if, if, if not the entire times of their career. Um, this is the epitome of the team when you're starting a 2K franchise of a, with a real NBA team that you just want to turn off the chemistry for. I mean, yes, oh, <laughs> it really yes. is. Um, but yeah, the, the third storyline that I've identified is this potential comeback season for John Wall. I, I actually had an article out today uh, on the step back um, that really is just talking about John Wall, you know, how he's preparing for a bounce back season. And really the, the injury that caused him to change his game so much last season is what made him struggle as much as people really thought he did. So, you know, just going through, them, going through some stats, last season, shots within three feet of the rim were just 31% of Wall's total shot attempts, which is a huge drop-off from the previous season, 2016-17, because those shots within three feet accounted for 38% of his attempts. Obviously, we know Wall's best at getting to the rim, either in transition or, you know, using one of those Marchine Gortat brick wall screens to get to the rim and get separation for a layup or at least to kick it out for a three-pointer. I mean, because really, when when Wall is at his best, he's attacking the rim in transition, pushing the pace, looking to recreate an open three-pointer for a teammate, set up a big man for a dunk or or a layup, um, and just capitalize on the defense being caught off guard. But, um, you know, he he attempted less free throws last year. Um, It was really it was under six free throws per game attempted last season compared to basically seven in 2016-17 and he attempted he attempted more three-pointers he went from uh 19 percent three-point attempt rate to 25 percent so that pretty much gives you the picture of just how much his injury prevented him from playing his ideal game of, of of seeking that contact and that physicality in the paint 
couple that with a career low in rebounds and uh, a huge decrease in steals per game. It was his lowest since the 2012-2013 season. And we get this image that he didn't really want to do all the dirty work, and that's because he was not fully healthy. So, like you said, he improved his shooting. If he can maintain that above-average three-point shooting and get back to kind of attacking the rim a little bit more and creating open shots, he is in line for a bounce-back season because Dwight Howard is, is a presence that he's never really had. Dwight Howard... As much as we kind of give him, you know, shit for not, you know, buying into a nice role, he presents a vertical component for the offense, which they've never really had in, in the John Wall era. I mean, you, you picture this and picture it a lot because you're not going to see it much on the floor in real life. I'm squinting my eyes. I'm squinting my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> a pick and roll with Wall and Dwight, with Beal and Porter and Moore surrounding them. I mean, if it's done right, it's either a layup or a dunk for Wall, it's an alley-oop for Dwight, or it's an open three, and that's pretty much nearly unstoppable. And you couple that with Wall hopefully running in transition more where he's healthy, you get, a, you get the feeling that they have a lot of room to improve offensively. And it was interesting when I was researching for this article. The Wizards... I was about to plug you for that article, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it I... popped on my feed bat, on Basketball Intelligence this morning. Best NBA <laughs> reporting analysis for today, the 18th September. And I read it. And y'all should read it, too. It's by Eric Spropolis on the step back. It's a bounce back season for uh, Mr. John Wall and how he how he's looking for one. It, it's a great article. I, I'm telling y'all should check it out. There's some numbers there. You see Eric on, you hear him on the podcast, read about it. I mean, you almost find yourself convinced that he may bounce back this year. But go on, Eric. I'm sorry, I had to do that. Well, I was interested because I, I found out that the Wizards have only had a top 10 offense once since Wall was drafted, which is absolutely, yeah. it's insane. I mean, it's really insane. Um, I think this team has the potential to have a top 10 offense if they stay healthy and they stay committed to their roles. And yes, I'm looking at you, Dwight. Just stay committed to your role, please. I do not want to see Dwight Howard post-ups taking off. But I can shoot threes. <laughs> Honestly, if he's shooting corner threes, it's better than his post-ups at this point in his career and the way the NBA is trending. But um, another key thing about their offense, before I get back to whatever we were talking about before, um, <laughs> last season they were fourth in three-point percentage as a team, 37.5%. That is really, really good. The bad part is that they were 23rd in attempts per game. Just shoot more threes. I think Otto Porter should be attempting more than six three-pointers a game. Moore should be shooting more than he did last season. Beal should be at, you know, seven or eight or even nine, upwards of ten three-pointers per game. I mean, you look at all the elite shooters, they are shooting a lot. They're, they're increasing their volume. Even a guy like James Harden, who's not an elite shooter in terms of percentage, he's, he's jacking up over 10 threes per game and getting that good volume just by the, the percentages working themselves out and that, that he's a good shooter. Bradley Beal's a better shooter than, than, than James Harden. He should be attempting upwards of 10 three-pointers per game. I mean, it, it gives them more offensive potential. You couple that with a vertical presence they've never had in the form of Dwight Howard and a bounce-back season from John Wall, they have potential for a top-10 offense to couple that with a at least league average or above defense. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they play to their potential, and you really broke it down pretty well, then they have a chance of, of, of being a pretty good seed in a, in a relatively wide-open playoff field. I think that they're going to be capped to as high, in my opinion, as fourth, but that's still pretty good for, for a Washington team that finished eighth last year and lost in the first round. And another um, important – no, not – semi-important to their future, but a storyline um, that I'd like to add just before it closes out is that Kelly Oubre Jr. and Thomas Sadoransky can are both restricted free agents this upcoming year. Um, I think Sadoransky's improved some, and Kelly Oubre has potential definitely with some flexible lineups and 
uh, a wing who can defend most twos and threes, but both have been inconsistent, and it's going to be interesting to see how much the Wizards want to pay them and how that will figure to how much those two want to get paid. We also have the realize that Markeith Morris is set to hit run restricted free agency next year, and the Wizards don't really have an obvious encore replacement to him, um, so Ubre might be even more important to their future than he appears already. And so that's going to be interesting to see, especially with, you know, letting Morris walk and turn to an Ubre Porter the injury um, last year, but would that really be entrusting Ubre with the more sizable role than he's actually earned? And, and mind you, that's a really important piece moving forward because, like you said, for this year already, you have them all locked in. But for next year with that forward spot, it could exponentially change from having Marquise Morris, um, Kelly Ubre, Otto Porter, and oh, I'm missing a player. Oh, you yeah, know, and Kelly Ubre, Otto Porter, and um, and Sadaransky to having just probably Porter. And, and Morris gone as well, and what would you do with that wing position? So that's something to monitor moving forward, because they were both extension eligible. It's huge to monitor, monitor because they have the like. It's very likely that they lose all of the guys you mentioned that are restricted and unrestricted free agents. Because uh-huh. you look at this next year, the 2019-2020 season. I'm looking up their salary cap right now. John Wall, 37.8 million. Otto Porter, 27.2 million. Bradley Beal, 27 million. Jan Mahimi, 15 million. Troy Brown, 3 million. Dwight Howard, player option for 5.6 million. He's taking it. I mean, he will, <laughs> He probably will take it, honestly. Unless, I mean, again, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if they have so much chemistry, they might just force him out of there, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but that's obviously a whole other thing. But you look at that, the core three, Wall, Porter, and Beal, all making, well, Wall's making 37. Uh, let me get my calculator out so I can give you a full number here. <laughs> We're crunching the numbers here on the 94 Viewport podcast, y'all. 27.2 plus 27. It's approximately 92 million. Actually, a little, it's probably like 93 or 94 million to those three players themselves. And I think the cap next year is projected for 109 million. That's covered by Jan Mahimi's $15 million salary. They have no money. They have no money left for this team. To, to, especially if, if a team comes in and gives Kelly Oubre, who's only 23, a nice offer, or Sidoransky 27, a nice offer that, that they know the Wizards are not going to match and just take him. Austin Rivers, unrestricted free agent. Um, he's gonna, he has to be gone. There's no way they're going to resign him. Markeith Moore, same thing. Um, they are in danger of losing all those guys that you mentioned because of their salary crunch, especially if this team continues to underachieve. If they don't, if they don't win a playoff series or make a, a, some kind of an extended playoff run or they struggle to barely get in the playoffs like they did last year. Waller Beal might be moving, right? Right. It's that situation that we've been talking about with Portland, which hasn't happened yet. But again, Portland and Washington, I feel like, are in almost the same boat in terms of Mm. they're focused on this dynamic all-star backcourt with some kind of supporting cast around them that just really hasn't lived up to what they need in order to actually compete in in their respective conferences. And because of that, it looks like the backcourts will be put on the chopping block in terms of one of those pieces being traded. Maybe in this case, it's not Beal and Wall. Maybe it's Otto Porter who's thrown out on the trade block as a 26-year-old hypothetical 3-and-D wing. And if they can move Porter, they can look to choose Ubre over Porter just because he's younger. But that's a tough decision to make and seeing if, if Ubre will ever become the shooter that Otto Porter is and if Ubre can actually be better defensively than Otto Porter is because they've both been really inconsistent so far. So, I mean, you bring up the... the the roster crunch they're going to have. I mean, this season they have talent. They've got the depth, which is why the pressure is on because this is basically their one opportunity to actually make that extended playoff run to maybe inspire ownership and front office to actually spend as much as possible to keep as many players as, the, as possible back for next season because if they'd underachieve this season with this kind of depth 
and a clean bill of health and a new vertical presence in Dwight Howard and some dynamic ball handlers and rivers uh, off the bench and a go-to guy you know here and there in Jeff Green supporting their solid starting lineup that was actually really good last year when healthy and it was in 2016-17. They've got to do something with this team that's really, really drastic and probably blow it up. So the pressure is on for them this year. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's just so many players, especially in the Southeast Conference, that we talked about where – whether you know whether they're going to be moved or just increased eyes and management on them pressure because um it's it's going to be fun I think we already went over the the, the one of in with the Wizards the most successful of this just lackluster Southeast division here but um but yeah are you going over the other over under with them I'm doing the so I think you mentioned it I have to it's forty four and a half I'm I'm hitting that over um I think I'm hitting it over pretty significantly honestly I think that this like I said, I think they've got a lot of talent. They got a lot of depth. I'm as I was writing the article, I kind of bought in in a Wall John a John Wall comeback season. All those factors combined, I think that'll push them to the upper 40s. Um, I think they can go anywhere from 46 to 49 wins this season. Oh, you're not gonna give them 50 wins? No, I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, if things break right for them, if they stay healthy and a team or two above them kind of gets hurt a little bit or banged up and they have the team chemistry kind of under control, this team can win 50. It has the amount of talent in the Eastern Conference to win 50 games. I just think there's going to be a couple of players-only meetings, a couple of banged-up injuries here or there to Beal, Porter, and Wall, make a miss five to ten games, maybe um, Dwight Howard jacking up offense with post-ups. So for that reason, I'll go with, uh, if I have to give a real number, I'm going to go with 48 wins. 48. Okay, I'm going to take the over as well. I'm going to go one under than you. I'm going to go 47 just because I feel at some point this season, Dwight is going to demand the ball in the post and the dude finished in 39th percentile last year in post-up efficiency. So uh, I think that's due for a couple losses, at least a couple. But they do have a, a, a good amount of talent. They easily have the best amount of depth that actually fits in this division that we just went over. And their ceiling is high, at least, you know, to go to 50. I'm going to put them at 47, be safe, take the over. Yeah, yeah, like you said, I think they're the most talented and they have the best fit, best fitting pieces. And they, I mean, based on what our predictions are, they predict to not fairly comfortably, but but pretty comfortably, I think, uh, win this division based on what we think of these teams in the Southeast. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. All right, that'll wrap up this Southeast Division preview episode of uh, the podcast. Um, this will be up again on Wednesday, September 19th. Uh, check it out. Uh, also, definitely check out all of our social media accounts for our. Uh, new image or rebrand hashtag 94 rebrand will be revealed tomorrow or, or today when you're listening to this as well so check out all that on social media you can follow me on twitter at eric spiros mba like i said check out uh, my article on the step back on john wall's potential comeback season and, and the pieces and how the wizards pieces can help him um this upcoming season uh corbin you can let everyone know where they can uh follow you Oh, at Corbin Ford NBA. Um, obviously, my destiny is deeply entwined with the 94 Feetport right now, so follow us at the 94 Feetport handle. Um, big changes coming, as we've already addressed. I'm excited, man. It's exciting. There's some stuff happening. Y'all need to be on for it. Yeah, Stay absolutely. Definitely be following us um, for new episodes of the podcast. Obviously, we're continuing our division preview series. We're actually training camp, third, baby. We this, almost out. <laughs> it's our third division. We're halfway there. Um, so we'll be continuing that over the next couple of weeks as we get closer and closer to the season. And of course, our hashtag 94 rebrand. So keep your eyes on that. You'll be following. If you're following us on social media, you'll be getting all that update um, and that juicy podcast content. All right, everyone. Take care. All right, y'all.